Ethan Demi is a small businessman and entrepreneur from Lancaster County. He's also a foster parent and a township supervisor. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in Harrisburg, and my guest today is Ethan Demi. He is the chairman and CEO of Demi Learning. Ethan, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm glad that uh, we can enjoy a brew together, and I, I guess we need to try to get the clink of, there Cheers. we go. Cheers. And uh, enjoying our new facility here in downtown uh, Harrisburg, uh, right at the foot of the Capitol. Uh, this is where everything happens. I'm glad you could uh, visit us here. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Came all the way from uh, Lancaster County, uh, where you reside. Um, but before we talk about uh, your some of the uh, hobbies that you enjoy, uh, that being in local government, uh, tell us a bit about uh, Demi Learning. What, what is Demi Learning? What does it do? So Demi Learning, we are a family-owned and operated uh, educational publishing company located in Lidditz, just north of Lancaster. Uh, we've been publishing and selling uh, textbooks, uh, learning aids, uh, for over 30 years now. Uh, we started, my dad started the business 30 years ago uh, with a product called Matthew C. So if you were a homeschooler in the last 30 years, you probably have heard of us. Uh, we've since expanded. I took over as CEO in 2011. Uh, we've grown the company a good bit. Uh, so we have probably over 50 employees right now. We have a spelling program, a math program, some supplemental programs, and we sell to the homeschool community, into charter schools across the country, as well as we also sell into the public school classroom. And so uh, your, your dad was a, a math teacher? Is that how he became, and, and an entrepreneur, obviously. He was a lot of things. So he started out <laughs> as a cabinet maker and a pastor, uh, and then he became uh, an assistant school teacher. And the second day he was an assistant school teacher, the teacher quit, the math teacher. <laughs> and they said, would you like to be our math teacher? And he said, okay. So they handed him a book, and that was his teacher training, and he won teacher of the year the first year he taught. Now, uh, did he hand the reins over to you and out of the business? This is all your baby now? Uh, no, we had a whole transition plan. Um, that's a whole other topic for another time, but he focuses his energy now as he's transitioned out of leadership in Demi Learning to he runs a, company, uh, a nonprofit called Building Faith Families. So he has a family ministry encouraging dads especially, but dads and moms to, to engage in passing their faith on to their kids. Now, uh, you're married, and uh, you and your wife uh, uh, live there in, in Lancaster County. Uh, that is home for you. And I know just from our own interactions, you've been a foster parent uh, for a bit, uh, quite the experience, as, as we've uh, talked about. Yep, being a foster parent is, uh, is not for the faint of heart. That's, a, that's <laughs> another topic, too. But yes, my wife and I have been foster parents for over a year now. Uh, we've had a couple placements, one for over a year. And we're currently in between, so I'm an empty nester again, uh, but looking to get back into it probably this summer sometime. And uh, so when you aren't doing these things, running your business, uh, fostering children, uh, you have some other hobbies uh, that, uh, that don't pay that, that probably cost you a lot, and one being a township supervisor uh, in East Lampeter Township uh, in Lancaster County. Um, you've been there, what, uh, you were first elected, what, 2013? 2013 it? and then sworn in in 2014, so a little over six years now. I, I just got reelected to my second term. Mm -hmm. And so you're a glutton for punishment uh, when it comes to local government. 
Yes. <laughs> well, local politics in general. So I was in politics before I was in government. Mm-hmm. And that started when I was 14. Uh, my dad got involved in a local race in Lancaster. There was a congressman there, Congressman Joe Pitts. Yep. You may have heard of him. Sure. Uh, so my dad got involved in 1996, and I helped uh, work my first poll at 14, passing out leaflets to get Joe Pitts elected. And I've been in local politics uh, as a committee person, as the county chair, as the area chair, uh, in and out of, of running campaigns since I was 14. And then I recently jumped in, and now I'm an elected official. So now I'm a politician, I guess. <laughs> yes, you are. You are a politician. Well, one of the things about uh, local government is that um, a lot of people don't understand. Uh, they probably can't name who their township supervisors are, uh, and they don't fully understand what local government is responsible for and, and what state government is or even federal government, if you've got uh, different uh, federal um, uh, you know, infrastructure or something like that running through your area. Uh, can you give us a, sort of a general overview of your responsibilities as a township supervisor and what township governance uh, is all about? Because we've got, I don't know, you probably know this, how many townships we've got in Pennsylvania. I mean, too many. Too many. <laughs> well, we, we do have, I know this, uh, that we have the second largest number of governmental units in the country. Uh, Illinois has more, but we've got, I think, over 2,000 different levels of government. I know we've got a lot of it, but uh, how about a township? Uh, I- explain what, what responsibilities our townships have. Sure. So local government in Pennsylvania, we're a commonwealth. Uh, so a lot of our local government comes from our messiness of a commonwealth. It worked a lot better when we only had a couple thousand people around. <laughs> um, but we cover anything from building the roads, maintaining your local roads, um, plowing the local roads, your water, your sewer, uh, fire coverage and police and EMS are requirements that we have to provide. Uh, luckily, we have four wonderful volunteer fire companies in East Lampeter, so they're not paid fire. Uh, so that saves the taxpayers a lot. But uh, the big piece I always go back to is we are responsible for the sort of the health uh, and safety of our local community. And then anything on top of that is a byproduct of what does our community want. Well, so, and this is where I always say, and, and you get ba- paid big bucks uh, to serve as the township supervisor. Um, your paycheck each year is is what? Uh, it's it's about $1,000, so it, I did get paid something. Um, oh, you do, huh? Yeah. It, so it works out to about three hours, cents an hour? Yeah, is that... I don't make 15 bucks an hour. <laughs> I may have to complain to Governor Wolf about that. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he can raise it for uh, township supervisors. Um, but, you know, this is where I think all the things you listed from, you know, your roads, uh, your fire, your police, uh, things that we take for granted, I mean, utilize uh, regularly, that's at the local level where you've got people who many times you don't know. Uh, and I always say that, uh, look, we've got things flipped. We're paying congressmen way too much relative to the impact that they have on our daily lives. Uh, and it's the local people, whether it's your school board uh, or your township supervisors, that really impact your daily life. Uh, and you'd be really angry uh, if they weren't taking care of the roads, if they weren't plowed, if your sewers were backed up, right? If mm-hmm. uh, police didn't come uh, and respond to uh, incidents. So, so your local government yeah. is the most important layer of government. What The decisions we make every day, every Monday night, every other Monday night in East Lampeter actually affect your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. We affect your daily life. We can raise your taxes and no one shows up to meetings when we do. And then no one shows up to vote. So East Lampeter is one of the larger municipalities with about 17,000 residents uh, but I could win in a contested race with 250 votes. Right, right. 
So I've had more people show up to meetings to complain about what we're doing than actually voted for township supervisor. Well, and, and I, is that a challenge, uh, getting people to run uh, for these offices? Yeah, local races, uh, school board especially, but township supervisor, um, those are hard to get people to run for. And then there's all the sub boards underneath that. You've got your zoning board, your land planning commission, your sewer board. Um, you've got an emergency services committee made up of citizen reps and volunteer firefighters. So there's a lot of folks, parks board. Um, one of the things we joke about at our meetings is if someone shows up to more than one meeting and isn't crazy, and they're alive, we would try to recruit them to be on a board. <laughs> so uh, describe East Lampeter in, in, in Lancaster County so, uh, so that people have some context that as we talk about some of the things that you can do uh, from a conservative policy and solving those problems uh, beyond just, you know, all right, making sure you've got roads and that you plow them, all of that. Uh, but describe East Lampeter. So East Lampeter is a little bit unique. We have a mix of... Uh, sort of a large tourist area. So if you've come into Lancaster County, 80% of the traffic is gonna come through East Lampeter Township. What are we, some of the landmarks that people go, oh, I know where yeah. that is. So if you've driven past the outlets or Dutch Wonderland, you've been on what we call Lancaster County's Main Street. So if you come in from the east and you come into Lancaster, you've driven on Route 30, you may have also remembered the traffic uh, on <laughs> Route 30, and that was that's East Lampeter. Um, and that's sort of the big piece that people know. That's the large tourist attraction. But we also have a strong business and industry center. We have Greenfield Corporate Center, which is a great place to own and operate a business. Uh, we have a lot of light industry as well. We've got high steel. And then we have rural areas like Ronks, Whitmer, and Burdenhand, uh, which is also a lot of Amish families live up there, a lot of farms, a lot of agriculture, agritourism. And then closer to Lancaster City, we've got Bridgeport, Harrisburg Area Community College, and almost uh, an ex-urban environment where you have much more density. So we have everything from high-dense areas uh, to farms and, mm -hmm. and folks walking around and riding Amish buggies and, and pushing themselves on scooters and trying to find policy that accommodates all of those folks but also still provides for the community is, can be a challenge. Almost a microcosm of all of Pennsylvania, right? Uh, it from really kind is. of urban, suburban, rural. Uh, and so uh, how does uh, East Lampeter sit in terms of its size uh, in, in the Commonwealth? Are, are you one of the larger townships, smaller townships? Where, where do you fit? So we're one of the larger townships uh, in Lancaster. We're probably what, in the five or six largest townships in, in Lancaster County. Uh, but in the, in the broader thousands of, of townships and boroughs, we're on the larger side. So we have a lot more complexity. In some rural townships where you have 500 residents, the township supervisors are also the guy who you know, drives the truck to plow the roads. And the other one is the treasurer, and they have no you know, manager, and there's limited staff. We have a professional staff. We've got a township manager. We have a police chief. We have a police force. Uh, we also have public works department. So we have a, a pretty sizable operation in East Lampeter, given the size that we are. And you noted that you have, what, four volunteer fire uh, departments? Uh, we've heard a lot uh, about volunteer fire departments, uh, the, the lack of uh, volunteers, uh, some of those challenges. Are those things that uh, you guys are able to handle and, and people are participating in that? Because I think that's one of those things that people just kind of take for granted, right? Yeah, so the local, the local community, um, I would say the modern world tends to be a lot more fragmented. We, we drive mm -hmm. to church, we drive to school, uh, we drive to our job, and we don't sort of live and operate in the same space. So finding a volunteer firefighter 
who lives in the neighborhood who also can serve in that neighborhood is very difficult. Uh, and there's less businesses giving the flexibility for folks to be volunteers. And the requirements to be a volunteer firefighter keep going up. Yeah. The training requirements that these men and women go through just to maintain their certifications, and they do it for free, and they will literally risk your life, their lives to walk into your house to save you and your kids. So is this a sustainable model? I mean, do you think that uh, we can continue It should be this? a sustainable yeah. model, and I think we need to find the best ways to accommodate that. But I think a lot of it's educating the public on what that means. And I view, if you go back to De Tocqueville and you talk about the, the, the little platoons, those little civic mm-hmm. organizations, I view the volunteer fire service as one of those integral hubs to maintaining a strong community. When when those die in the rural areas, in the suburban areas, it's going to be a real challenge to both fill the void from a safety standpoint, but more importantly, to fill that void from a, from a community and culture standpoint. Well, I, I want to talk about some of those other challenges that you, you do face, particularly things that maybe the state is doing or the federal government. Uh, uh, we, we hear a lot about unfunded mandates or things like that. Um, but what are some of the things that, that you see as real opportunities uh, for communities that you're serving to uh, have policies that encourage, you know, private property rights and people being able to, uh, um, well, I, I guess, live in communities that they go, this is why I, I call East Lampeter home. Yeah, so some of the things, as I got involved in, in local government, I'm, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, I have been my entire life, um, and I view it as how can, you, how can we solve this without sort of a government mandate to do something? Um, and if we can do it, Let's, let's try it out. And at the local level, everyone sometimes argues there's, there's not a Republican or Democrat way to, to take out the trash. But there are nuances in how you take out the trash. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of those big things in Lancaster County, we face an affordable housing crisis is one of the big pieces. So hmm. even though Pennsylvania is losing population every year um, in, in part to our, our poor business climate, at the local level, Lancaster County is thriving. We're growing at a faster rate than we're growing at four to six percent a year, mm. while mm. Lancaster, while Pennsylvania is, you know, dropping one to two percent a year. And a lot of that's people migrating within Pennsylvania. We have a lot of uh, uh, refugees and immigrants who resettle in Lancaster as well. But our problem is housing. So we've got plenty of jobs. We've got a good mix in our local economy, but we struggle with places to put the folks. Uh, so the rates are going up to buy a house or rent a house. And I've been a member of our local coalition for sustainable housing for the last couple years trying to look at policies and you've got, we need more federal spending. Uh, we need more state spending. We need uh, more local spending on housing. Uh, and the other one, when you look at the flip side, it's, or we could start to cut regulations. Because hmm. when you look at building affordable housing, one of the main impediments to that is government regulations, both in the time that it takes to get through all the permitting, uh, but secondarily, all the actual local rules that, that dictate what you have to build. Um, parking minimums are one of those things. Parking can be up to 15% of the cost of a local um, apartment. But what if the people in the apartment are right next to a train line and they actually don't want to have a car or it's older folks are moving in or younger folks who don't necessarily have a car. So you don't need two parking spaces per unit uh, if the market is saying, hey, we only want one per unit. So how can we make ourselves more adaptable to the market? Government is fundamentally inflexible and the market needs to be flexible. So to solve this crisis, I started to look at what can we do that costs nothing 
uh, and let's exhaust those options before we try to spend more money mm -hmm. to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. It's a novel concept. It, it is because you usually hear, oh, well, we need the state to do something or the local government to, to, to pay for this or that. Uh, we need a grant from the federal government. Uh, you're saying, well, let's tackle it from the other direction. What is hindering the use of the things that we already have, right? We've got assets. Are we maximizing their uses uh, when it comes to housing? So what are, what, what are your solutions? What, how have you solved this, Ethan? <laughs> uh, so one of the solutions, and, and again, I always view local government as I don't come up with solutions, I Google them. And usually there's some other smart person, usually they're dead, uh, who has already solved this problem before I did, and I just copy their, their solutions. So that's, I'm just better at Google than some people. But I was in one of these meetings where we were talking about affordable housing, and I said, we don't have a housing problem. We have a space utilization problem. Mm. If you go to my parents' house or, or your extended relatives, there's plenty of people you know whose kids have moved out, they've gone to college, and they're still living in the same house. But they've got a lot of extra square footage. They've got extra spare rooms that they could turn into a micro-apartment or rent the room out. Um, and when you look back at some of our previous housing crises, like post-World War II, when all the GIs came home and they needed to find housing, we solved these sort of fluxes in the market, not by going out and building another high-rise apartment right next door. We went out and said, all right, how can we make people utilize their space better? And the best way is to incentivize them, too. So one of the things I worked for the last couple of years on, and we finally passed, is we call it accessory apartments by right. So it's the right of somebody to say, I can take, uh, for example, I, I converted my basement into an apartment. And for a while, I had a brother-in-law who lived in my basement. So it had a separate entrance. It had a little kitchenette. It had a bathroom. And it had a washer-dryer in there. So, even And some was, regulations would not allow that to happen in many communities. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Is it? If, if the person's related to you, usually yeah. it's legal. Okay. But the minute they're not related to you, now it's against the law. Okay. Um, people still do it. If you go yeah. on Craigslist, you'll yeah. see it. But if you incentivize it, there's lots of extra space. So that space... I could now, because we changed our zoning ordinance, I could rent that out to you. You could come in and say, look, I just got transferred to, to Lancaster. <laughs> I'm a professional. I'm moving in. I want to live someplace for six months until I figure out where I want to buy a house. I could rent that out to you for but, a lot less. But prior to your changing that regulation, you would not have been able to do that legally. Correct. So what we made it is you can now rent out an apartment a second as a secondary use on your property by right in any residential zoning district in East Lampeter. And what this does is that you're not going to all of a sudden get a thousand new housing units, mm -hmm. but you might get 40. Mm -hmm. And if each municipality actually loosened their regulations and allowed people to make money renting out their own stuff, you would solve the affordable housing crisis in Lancaster overnight because you would just need 20, 30 folks in every community to do the same thing, make some money, as opposed to saying we need a one 100-unit high-rise right next to a suburban area where all the folks are going to rise up and say, we don't want that in our area. It's going to create too much traffic or it's going to create a strain on our school system. So the goal is, and the principle is you take, and you take a developed area and you say, can we loosen the regulations to allow for the next incremental level of development? Mm -hmm. You don't want to go from a small suburban neighborhood to a 50-story high, high rise in the middle of it, you want to say, I've got a suburban neighborhood. Can I have maybe 10% of those folks, you know, rent out a room or rent out a small apartment? So two things. Did you get pushback from people in the community when you said, hey, we're going to allow this? Uh, and then second, 
Uh, have you seen a, a utilization of this freedom that you've said, hey, people can use this? Are, are you seeing, uh, did you see that when you first introduced this? And then what has been the result? So when I first started talking about it, I knew fundamentally people don't like change. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had worked on a property maintenance code that we, that we passed that had a good bit of opposition. Uh, initially, we modified it to where it was more palatable, and we passed that, and we've seen great results. But I learned from that one that you don't just go in and push for radical change. So this time I started early. I met with our township staff. I met with local stakeholders. Uh, as I went door-to-door each year for candidates, I would talk about these things. Then I met with all of our supervisors and got their buy-in on the, on the concept. And at the end, we passed it as a technical amendment to our zoning ordinance, and no one showed up. And are you seeing utilization? Uh, people that are saying, hey, we, we, we understand that we can do this now? I'm hearing more chatter about okay. it, but the fun thing is we can't see it at the government yeah. level because we don't register apartments. <laughs> and the fact is we made it so you can do it by right, which means you don't need to ask permission from the government to do it. You can just do it. Well, and as we're talking here, I'm thinking, okay, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm older and uh, I'm having trouble paying my property taxes, this might be a way to subsidize that, right? R- rent out the room. Uh, that you've got. or I I can see how this uh, would be beneficial. Fundamentally, my view is if you have property, if you have assets, you should be allowed to make money using your own assets. Often we talk about the big, you know, capital versus labor. um, But if you can use your own capital, uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, the problem with capitalism is that there's too few capitalists. Hmm. My Hmm. goal is to make much more capital. Everybody, yeah. Everyone (laughs) should be able to use their own assets that they've invested in, whether it's their car to drive Uber or their house to rent out as an apartment. We should have the freedom to use our own assets to make money. And every time the government restricts that, it it hurts both the market's ability to adapt, but it hurts our ability to be free. Well, and that sounds like uh, kind of the principle that you're employing on a number of these other areas. Is uh, uh, so? What what el- what other problems or challenges are you tackling to expand that freedom to make more capitalists? Uh, so a couple of things that I'm I'm working on. So I haven't passed these ones yet. So I'm, I've started to meet with some folks and basically. You start meeting with folks, ask them questions. If we did this, how would you respond? What do you think of this? I start Googling and finding out who else is doing similar things. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the stories, our family business started literally in our basement. So when I moved to Lancaster County when I was about 10 years old, my dad, uh, we had had the business, but it was very small at the time. And my dad had retired or stopped teaching, uh, and he was still sort of a part-time pastor, but you don't make money as a part-time pastor. So he would paint houses for an Amish contractor down the southern end of Lancaster County. So as a child, I remember he would take my brother and I, he'd wake us up six, seven in the morning, we'd go paint houses. So a little bit of child labor goes into there. <laughs> and we'd pay till about noon, we'd come home. Uh, and then we'd eat lunch all together as a family. And then my brother and I would stay home and my mom would homeschool us. And my dad would go back out and paint houses. He'd come home at dinner time, And then we'd pack orders and ship out math textbooks at night. <laughs> And as that business grew, it grew from being in our basement to we built an addition onto our house. Then my dad quit painting houses and started full-time with the business. And then we, we started hiring, you know, a couple part-time employees to come to the house. And we had big trucks stopping once a month. And we didn't have a forklift. We just unloaded it by hand. It took about a half an hour. And I look back to those elements. And we were down in Drewmore Township, which didn't have a lot of regulation. Mm-hmm. And now our business is up by Lancaster Airport in Mannheim Township. And nothing is Mannheim Township, but it would be illegal for our business to, to do start what you did. Huh. in Mannheim Township. Mm. So we often talk when we look at sort of welfare, there's a cliff effect to welfare. Yep. As people try to pull themselves up and get out of poverty, 
they get to a point where if they get a raise, they lose benefits that are more lucrative than their raise, so they deny the raise. Um, we see the same cliff effect when you're starting a business. Often, uh, Republicans like business, but we also have rules at the local level that stop them from growing. Mm-hmm. So at the local level, a business should be able to start in your house and grow naturally and evolve legally. And then when you get big enough, you then have a warehouse and you move out into that warehouse. Right now, there's, I call it the big gray area where you just hope you don't get caught. You're running your business mm-hmm. in your house. You have a couple part-time employees. You hope your neighbors don't call and report you. Um, and then eventually... You're trying to you... jump over the canyon of that cliff, huh? Yep. And if you get <laughs> caught, your business could be over. Yeah. But if you want to create an economic environment where people can make money, create employees, create jobs, this is how you do it. So one of the things I'm working on is what's called home occupation business by right, which starts to detail and relax the regulations that says, all right, here's the home occupations that are by right. For example, you might be a music teacher and you want one student at a time to come to your house. Well, as long as you're, you're, you're not making a mess on the street with parking and you're not, you're not having 30 people over all day long to, and one on-lot sewer system that's overflowing into the creek, <laughs> what you do in your house doesn't really matter as long as you're not making it unsafe for your neighbors. So those are some of the things that right now would be you'd have to go get a special exception in most townships to be able to literally have piano lessons in your house. And do you see some uh, some of those kinds of businesses in your township right now that you're saying, oh, we can allow those things to blossom? Or, uh, I mean, is this what one of those uh, things that you're going, hey, let's get ahead of this. Maybe we can, how we can uh, incentivize uh, more entrepreneurs, uh, more Demi learnings in the, in the, you know, early stages. So I won't name any names because I know quite <laughs> a few businesses are in that gray area. Okay. So I don't want to call them out because yeah. then they might get reported. Um, But there's lots of businesses that are starting up. There's a lot of creative people. And with the Internet, you now have the ability to do a lot more out of your house than you ever did before. You can buy things from one place and then sell it on the Internet to somebody else. This is the essence of a market. You buy something at a low price somewhere else, and then you you improve it, and you sell it for a higher price somewhere else. So you have people flipping things on Craigslist, on Facebook Marketplace. You've got folks – teaching lessons out of their house. So they might be a Greek teacher, a Latin teacher, and there's, they might have three students in Lancaster, but they have 30 online. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the flexibility of that, or we employ lots of folks who work from home, so we allow remote work. Uh, so having a home-based office, it's the same person who lives in the house. They're just there all day. Is that allowed? What if someone comes and visits them for work? What if you're a consultant? So there's a lot of things that when you talk to a normal person, they go, well, yeah, it makes sense. That shouldn't be yeah, illegal. Right. Now, there's other pieces <laughs> that says, well, what if the person's running a yard sale in their yard nine months out of the year? Yeah. Well, that's going to create a bunch of traffic on my street. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. I agree. So you have to have some boundaries there. But right now, the boundaries are way too strict in most areas. So home occupation is, is one of those ones I'm working on right now. Now, uh, you, you said something about micro-homesteading. Uh, what, what is that? What is micro-homesteading? So if you go on the internet and you go on a rabbit trail on Pinterest, I'm a Pinterest <laughs> junkie, and I also I grow food. Uh, so I have a garden. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you go back, again, this isn't a new thing. If you go back to World War II and you have the Freedom Gardens, people trying to, to grow some vegetables in their own yards to support the war effort, or you can grow vegetables in your yard to support your own family. Um, you can either then sell those vegetables or eat them and reduce your, your grocery bill. But in a lot of areas, cities and suburban environments or restrictive homeowners associations, you're not allowed to literally grow vegetables in your front yard. <laughs> so 
But these are ways that, again, you can monetize an asset that you own. You can take, hey, I've got a great piece of ground. I've got sunlight. I've got some free time. I like growing things. I could actually grow vegetables or something else that I could then sell or eat to reduce my cost or generate revenue, which helps you then offset some of the other taxes that you have to pay just to live here. So uh, when it comes to the things that uh, are either handed down from state government or the federal government, uh, I know that those tend to be some challenges. One, frequently, you need to do this, but without any resources to do that, go find them, right? Um, There are many of those. (laughs) Many of those. Uh, As well as, uh, you know, I know recently Governor Wolf uh, proposed his budget he has attempted a number of times of uh, imposing a uh, fee uh, for state police coverage. Um, what are you, what's your take on that? How does that impact you at the local level, at the township level? Uh, but maybe first explain what Governor Wolf is actually trying to do with that. So he's run this a couple of times. Initially, it was just a $25 per capita fee um, imposed on municipalities that didn't have uh, local police coverage. So you have state police sort of the Pennsylvania State Police, and you have the local police. Mm-hmm. Then the local police can be both full-time or part-time, uh, and state police uh, covers in the, in the difference between those. And I've grown up, when our business was in Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania, we were state police coverage, and that meant the alarm went off, and I would drive over at midnight to the warehouse, which was an old barn, and I called the police, and no one showed up. And no one showed up, so you exercise your Second Amendment rights, and you clear the building, <laughs> lock it back up, and the police never came, uh, which sometimes happens. Or it might take 20 minutes mm-hmm. because they're stretched thin, and something else much more important than, hey, a building alarm went mm-hmm. off. Because most building alarms are just their false alarms anyway that drive up police costs. So he has been trying to do this. The new uh, one is a little more nuanced. It actually gets rid of the per capita and says, all right, there's a formula that's based off of uh, response time, what the needs are per capita, because per capita is a really bad way to judge it. But now the fee applies to everyone. So it's a formula so that the areas with high police coverage pay less but still pay something, and the rural areas with no local police coverage pay a lot more. So even if a township has a full-time police force, they're going to be paying a, a fee of some sort to, to cover state police? Exactly. Um, and one of the, the arguments is that, hey, the, the folks without a local police are getting state police coverage for free, and I reject that entire premise because <laughs> we're already paying for state police. Yeah. Every time you pay your sales tax, your income tax, or more importantly, gas your gas, gas tax, that's right. that money is going right into the state police. So everyone's already paying for the state police. Uh, and then some areas are paying extra for local police as well. Is uh, Governor Wolf trying to uh, reduce the amount of money coming from any of those funds? Or is this just an additional tax that uh, he wants to uh, spend in Harrisburg? Um, so as I read the proposal, it's actually trying to reduce the amount coming from the motor vehicle fund, which mm-hmm. is funded by liquid fuels tax and move that and shift it to this fee, which would then replace that. So essentially, it's a general fund fee, a fee that goes in a general fund that pays for the state police services that over time reduces the impact on your, on your motor vehicle fund, which conceptually, I love that idea. This idea that, that state police funding comes from gas tax, gas tax right. when gas tax should go to repairing roads, building bridges, and making sure we have solid infrastructure. That's that's what every politician came and told us they were going to do <laughs> right, with the money right. when they raised the gas tax, not spend more money on state police. And um, we're talking about hundreds of millions uh, in that, right? 
like eight hundred million. Yeah, dollars yeah. A I year. thought it was ne- nearly a billion dollars uh, that uh, is being sucked out of uh, the motor vehicle uh, fund. Um, so, so who's uh, wh- as you line things up? Who's for this? Who's against it? I, I think it's pretty easy to figure that out. But uh, I think you're going to start to see the. You've got the rural areas that don't have any local police coverage that are going to be against it. You've got the the urban areas that will pay very little under this that won't be opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is the metro areas now have a little more incentive to support it. Uh, like if you're a state rep of a metro area, it might only increase your local cost, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars out of a ten million dollar budget. So it's more palatable, but at the end of the day, I think it's a bad idea. State police should be funded out of the general fund, but what they're doing here is they're saying we in Harrisburg are afraid to go actually out and tell the, the residents we either need to raise taxes or cut spending to pay for state police, which is a valuable asset to our communities. And instead, they're saying, we're going to kick it down to the local government and force us to raise taxes or cut spending to pay for it. So we have to do the hard work, but then we get no ability to say, all right, well, we want you to now cover over here. Mm. I mean, it'd be one thing if we have to pay a fee to state police, but then we got to tell them where they the patrol area. Right, right. Which it's a purse strings, is not right? going to yeah, happen. Yeah, so yeah. we want to. They want us to pay for it, but they want to control it. If we pay for it, I'm fine paying for it as long as I get to control it. And so, uh, do you think that this is? Uh, it hasn't gone anywhere before, but he has tweaked his proposal. Uh, where do you see this going uh, in this budget session? In this cycle, I don't see it going anywhere still, but it has a little more legs than it did at, at the old proposal. So it's a better proposal. It's a little more palatable, but it's still a bad idea. Well, so other issues that I, you guys have your own pension uh, challenges, uh, as uh, the state does. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania has one out of uh, every four pension systems in the country. Uh, <laughs> so 25% of all public employee pensions are in uh, one of the 50 states right here uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, is that a challenge that you, you uh, deal with at the local level? It's a challenge. It's not as much for, say, a city like you know Scranton or Reading or York mm-hmm. or Lancaster even or Harrisburg. So some of your urban environments have been and the challenge isn't because we're different. The challenge is because they've had the obligation longer. Mm. Um, the, the unfunded liability that keeps to grow over time is, is a feature of the system, not a bug. Uh, the difference is your local metro areas like East Lampeter, we've had a pension for a shorter amount of time. Uh, so we haven't had the same challenges that mm-hmm. the cities have had for. So give know, it some time, and it will be uh, wildly out uh, underfunded. It will. It will eventually <laughs> get to that point unless your local govern, government folks actually stick to funding it at the appropriate levels because the temptation is let's tweak the formula so mm-hmm. that we can decrease the amount we have to put into it and let's pretend that the that the ta- um, stock market is going to fund it for us um, so there's a couple things that that I've tried to push at the local level to sort of stop that from happening we're really well we're probably hundred percent funded right now for both our uniformed and non-uniformed our non-uniformed is a little more funded which is if you are looking at the whole state, we're in the AAA. We're the best. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what everyone should do. But I always say when you're doing well is when you should start to make investments into the future, uh, not when you're when you're crunched at your budget time. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that I've looked at doing, and I've I, I served uh, with the um, state chamber of commerce on their policy roundtable, and we spent a lot of time looking at both state and municipal pension reform. Uh, if you talk to folks at the Mercatus Center, for example. You have two sort of views is, hey, we're 100% funded per the state's definition, so we're fine. Yeah. 
Or I like to use the definition that Mercatus uses, which is when one of my police officers retires in the future, what's the likelihood that they're actually going to get a check Mm -hmm. for what we promised them? Mm -hmm. Which I think that's the more important one because at the end of the day, if I promise the police officer, hey, give us the best years of your life, (laughs) work for us, uh, put your life on the line, and then I'll promise you this big fat pension. And then he comes time to get the check and we say, sorry, we ran out of money. I think he might not like that. (laughs) And it's unfair. Um, And so they say, if you're 100% funded with a 7% assumed rate of return Mm -hmm. on the stock market, you have a 50% chance of writing that check. Mm. So even at your 100% 100%. funding level, you're still making some assumptions that say 30 years from now. Yeah, 7% is pretty high. Yeah. (laughs) Now, 7% is high relative. So, you know, if if you're my age uh, and you have a 401k and you have an index fund and you say, I want to retire when I'm 80. Mm -hmm. You're going to go high risk into the stock market. You might be getting 9%, 10% mm-hmm. a year on a good year or zero, but it's going to even out. If you're, say, your age. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, you may want to you know, have a more conservative portfolio that's a little less risky but gets you closer to that 5 6%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as a, as a government official, you know, my 401k, I'm high risk because mm-hmm. I'm young. As a government official, I think we should be lower risk. So when you have an assumed rate of return, which is – in your actuarial assumption, this is kind of nerdy. Yep. You're saying, I'm assuming the stock market is going to return 7% net of fees yep. for Forever. the next 30 yeah. years. <laughs> um, now, a good manager is going to get you that. So, But they're going to do that by doing a higher risk portfolio, mm-hmm. which increases your, your risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I've tried to get us to do, and at 7%, we're still on the low side. Mm. Uh, there's folks who are 9% wow. in this state who are saying, hey, we're going to get 9% <laughs> net of fees. And the higher risk you have, the more your fees are. So Let me know where they're at. And if they're making it, I'll put my money into those. Uh, yeah, go invest yeah. In, in Scranton's municipal pension fund. <laughs> but what I'm trying to do is saying, let's let's say over the next 10 years, let's slowly start to move that ARR, the assumed rate of return, you know, down to 6% over 10 years. Mm-hmm. We're funded now. We've got a solid economy going now. When your economy's doing great is when you should put money away for the future, not when it's doing poorly. Mm-hmm. So right now, if things are great, the economy's pumping along, let's start to invest in the future. And at the same time, you also have this other thing. There's new uh, general accounting standards for local governments, GASB standards, which are starting to appear. So if you go to your budget session for your local council, your supervisors, or your county governments, you're going to see what's called an OPEB. Yep. And an OPEB is a, an other, other post-employment benefits, yes. Other post-employment <laughs> benefits, which you know about, but most people go, what's that? Yeah, OPEP? what's that? Yeah. And you're going to start to see footnotes appearing in yes. those things, which is there's post-employment benefits. We've promised employees. Yep. Uh, oftentimes it's health care until you reach the age of 65. So if you're you're hired and you retire at 55, you still get full health care coverage until you're 65 mm-hmm. or older. So you look at that and you say, all right, what's the cost of that health care cost? As the person ages, and right now most folks are just cash flowing it. They're just paying the bills as they come in. But the amount of folks retiring versus the folks collecting now uh, is starting to reverse. So over the next couple of years, you're going to start to see a big crunch. So that's called a, an unfunded liability, which says in the future it's going to be a lot of money. But right now it's not. So the unfunded liability in the future, what should you do? And while we're putting a lot of our pension uh, liabilities on the paper, right, we're Mm -hmm. doing that at the state level, local level, uh, generally, uh, we're not putting a lot of the OPEB benefits, right, Uh, that that those liabilities, which uh, can be even greater than some of the pension liabilities, correct? Correct. 
Uh, so sometimes those can be greater. And at the local level, you may have a, a fully funded police pension, mm-hmm. but your OPEB is not funded at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had one of those when I came into East Lampeter. And the first thing I tried to get us to do, which we did, um, is we started to put money aside into a special fund that was just for that that future liability. So we started to put cash into it now. And once the cash grows big enough uh, and we start to understand at what level people are utilizing the the liability, we can dial it in and maybe set up a trust or some other mechanism to ensure that if we promise something to an employee, they get it. Mm-hmm. It's this basic human nature of, yes. hey, if we promised you something, <laughs> we, we're obligated to give it to you, not just kick the can down to the next you know, supervisors 20 years from now to, to deal with it. Well, we've touched on a lot of things that uh, we could probably do a program on multiple of uh, these. And so we'll probably have to come back and revisit some of this stuff because these are important things. These affect your life. Uh, you know, people, again, local government is uh, probably the government that you use the most uh, every single day, yet it seemed we take it for granted. But uh, I really appreciate you joining me, Ethan, on Brews and Views. And, well, thank you for having uh, help, me. You bet. I mean, of course, ha- enjoying a beer, but talking about these things that uh, really matter. Uh, thanks for helping us better understand local government. It's the not sexy part of politics. Everyone <laughs> wants to talk about the budget at the state level, but no one actually shows up to your local budget meeting at your township. So go to your township meeting and show up, and you can make a big difference. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.